Montana Voice Part 6 of The Lie Bearings Half a million dollars in my closet in Missoula. I was in bed with an artist. She was not sleeping well. In her sleep, she was talking loudly in Japanese, and when I turned on the light, she sat up and stared through me. I said, Kaori, you're having a bad dream. Wake up. When I tried to put my arm around her, she slapped it away and still, in Japanese, started yelling and kicked the covers away. Then she looked about my room and said, in English, Take me home. This not my place. You not, Jim. You not, boyfriend. She would not tell me what she had been dreaming. She would not explain why she was upset. A few hours before, we had come back to Missoula from New York. I had unlocked my front door, put the suitcase with the money in the hallway closet, turned on the lights, and invited Kaori inside. It was the first time she had been in my place. She walked around, touching books and looking at pictures on the walls. She went into my kitchen and opened the fridge. She laughed because of how empty it was. Then she went into my bedroom and saw her painting, the one she had slashed, the one I had taken from the dumpster behind her apartment. She said, You put on wall. Then she looked down and saw the sketch that she had drawn for me in the restaurant and said, This no good. And before I could stop her, she grabbed it and had torn it lengthwise, crumpled and dropped it. This not for you, she said. I picked up the ruined sketch from the floor and told her that I had liked it and that she had given it to me. Why, why do you do these things, I asked. She didn't answer. Instead, she asked me where the bathroom was, and she said, I sleep here, then you take me home. But now she was panting, her face damp with cold sweat. She began pulling on her clothes, then pointed up at the slashed painting and said, I give this to Jim, and she started to take it down from the wall. I asked her to leave it, saying she had given it to me, and she repeated, You are not Jim, you are not one love. I tried to talk to her, to calm her. I told her that she had given the painting to me. I asked her to put it down, but she shook her head wildly and yelled, No, I trash painting. I trash. She kept yelling. She told me that I knew nothing, that I had nothing in common with her. She said, I give heart to Jim. I give nothing for you. Then she slumped against the wall, holding the slashed painting in her lap, and said, I go home. You take me to apartment now. I go home. I go. I never love you. I drove Kaori to her apartment. In front of her place, she said, This no home, this only place to paint. But she got out of the car, took the painting, her travel bag, and portfolio case from the back seat, and walked away. And I drove back to my house. Instead of trying to go back to sleep, 
I put on a heavy coat and sat in the backyard. I looked up and thought about driving back to Kaori's apartment. Maybe I could knock on her door and say, Hey, let me in. Through her hands, with paper and ink, she had drawn a motion that I could see. So real. But she had not done it for me. I lifted my right arm and pointed at Jupiter and Saturn, close together low in the southeast above the lights of town. I moved my hand and traced the outline of the hunter, Orion. The familiar stars, the constant blanket through the years, but as distant as light and time can be. No warmth that my hands could touch. I stayed in the backyard until the stars began to fade. It was then Thursday morning, one day before I was scheduled to go to Seattle to meet with Dave Cheat, the manager of SLAM's transport coders. There wasn't any time to even begin figuring out how to convert paper to coins, as Tsai had suggested, but I did not want half a million of illegal money in my house. I drove to a grocery store and I bought a dozen quart-sized plastic storage boxes, airtight things that organized people used to store leftovers in their fridge. I came home, took the suitcase out of my closet, and emptied it. I put one of the socks, stuffed with $10,000, into my dirty clothes hamper. Then I took the rest of the money out of the socks and packed it all in the storage boxes. The money fit neatly in eight boxes, and those fit into my backpack, which I put in the trunk of the car. I checked that the entrenching tool, a small folding shovel, the type sold in Army-Navy stores, was also still in the trunk. Then I drove up the Rattlesnake Valley to the trailhead. I walked fast for two hours. I did not walk on the trail. I went up the open ridge, on the edge of the lodgepole forest. The November day was warm, with a hint of snow in the air and a feeling that winter would arrive soon. When I got high enough, I looked around. I was absolutely by myself, and at least two miles from the nearest road or trail. I checked that the ground was not yet frozen. There is a large, solitary spruce tree. I walked to that tree. There was a clear view from near the tree, down and across the Missoula Valley. I took off the pack. In the front pocket were a few things that were always there. Matches, a notebook, a pencil, a small first aid kit, a red nylon poncho, and a Brunton. An old school geologist's pocket transit. I took out the notebook, pencil, and transit. With the transit... I made a compass sighting across the valley to the top of Mount Sentinel, and then I wrote down the bearing number in the notebook. I took two more transit sightings of mountaintops and noted these as well. The first, Mount Sentinel, the mountain with the large white M, then University Peak with its beacons and radio towers. Finally, the third sighting, almost due south, was to Bass Peak, 
with its stone and glass window lookout tower. Then I remembered hiking up Bass Peak with Helen. That time with Helen, that was midsummer, the one summer we were together, the summer before she went back to Detroit. She and I got to the top of Bass Peak to the lookout tower and climbed the steps. The door to the lookout was unlocked. We went inside. No one was there, but someone was staying there. Dishes were on the counter. A kettle of water on the propane stove was slightly warm. The logbook was open with a notation from earlier in the day. There was also a big bed with a big sleeping bag. Helen pulled my hand. She sat on the bed. She kissed me. She took her shirt off. You're nuts, I laughed. The lookout could come back any moment. We'll see him before he sees us, Helen said, pointing out the windows that lined all the walls in the lookout. The mountaintop was all stone, wind, and cloud, but no trees. The trail, which we had hiked up, zigzagged on the open ridge for half a mile before it became lost down beneath the curve of the mountainside. We just have to remember to keep looking, she said. And then she took off the rest of her clothes. From the day pack she had carried, Helen took out a small drawing tablet and a box of pastels. She was sitting on the edge of the bed. We were dressed again, looking down the mountain, wondering when the lookout, the, the person, would come back to his tower. Then she told me that I should do something for her while she was sketching. Do something? I asked. Didn't you want me to light this stove and cook use some lunch with this guy's food since we've used his bed? She said, No, write something for me. This drawing I am starting is for you. I'm drawing for you. Write something for me. She tore a blank sheet of paper from her drawing pad and handed it and a pen to me. She said, Put some words down. I asked her, you want, you want me to write to you? Helen turned and looked at me. She said, and these words I remember more clearly than anything she ever said to me. Write me a love letter. Equations and math, tumbling from observing to saying to doing. I had never written a love letter. I never had anyone to share loneliness with. I, I can't write, I said. I, I, I don't know how, I said. You can talk, Helen answered, so you can write. I looked one more time, down at the rocks, down through the wisps of cloud, and then I looked at the paper. Next to me, I wrote. I did not know grammar, and my spelling was phonic, a dropout. However, I filled the page, and then I turned it over and continued. I traced the outline of my left hand. Inside of that, I drew a profile of the mountain we had just hiked up, Bass Peak, with lines showing a triangle to where we had started hiking. The steps we have taken, I wrote, 
Then underneath this, I drew another line with the word time. Then I wrote winter, eastern Montana, nothing, then you, then spring, then everything. Under those words, I wrote a formula for the derivative of an equation with imaginary numbers, the equations that used an impossible answer to the math riddle of what is the square root of negative 1. Then I wrote a formula for the slope of a rising curve and another formula for the intersection of those two equations. Then, along the bottom of the outline of my hand, I wrote more words with my dropout's grammar, fragmenting the sentences like the brevity of math, like the beating of my heart. I wrote, the wind, the openness of together. I wrote, Helen, you are here. I wrote, your shoulders, your arms moving as you draw. I wrote, I am with you, you are with me, the wind knows this. I wrote, you are the reason for words. I lean on this small word, love. I wrote, truth. Helen gave me her drawing, and I then gave Helen my words. She looked at them and said, Enzi, you must always carry a notebook with you. We left the tower as we had found it before the lookout person returned. Then we hiked back down with no worries of any future. But I was worrying now hurrying while still being practical. I took the poncho out of my pack and ripped a long three-inch wide strip from it. I reached as high as I could and tied the strip around the spruce tree. I used to transit again, taking a sighting back towards the spot from which I had just walked. I wrote down that bearing. Then I walked in a straight line along that line counting my paces. I stopped arbitrarily at 73 paces. I was using old technology. I was thinking of the sea and of the stars. I wrote five numbers in my notebook, each number separated from the other with a period, the last number listed after a colon. 128.119.1119 dot 93 colon 73. The tree with the red ribbon was at the triangulation point of three good memories. The money was then buried 73 paces away at a bearing of 93 degrees from the tree. Because of my surface of technology, someone trying to understand what I had written would probably guess that the numbers were in IP address, a computer number. Even if they knew that the numbers were in some way a direction to a cache of cash, they would probably search for a computer that did not exist. Or they might think of GPS numbers. <laughs> but who would think compass bearings, paces? Memories are the most difficult codes to break. I started digging. 
It took me an hour to make a hole large enough for all eight plastic containers. When I was finished and covered everything up and scattered the remaining dirt and stones about with my feet, I was content that someone walking even directly over the money would not suspect that anything was buried there. I took one long, careful look back at the spruce tree, 73 paces away, with a red ribbon tied to it. Any hiker seeing the tree and the ribbon would think it was nothing more than an old marker left by a hunter. I memorized the tree as well, its shape, its fractal outline against the sky. Even if someone pulled down the ribbon, I would remember the tree. I swung on my pack, walked back to the car, drove back to my house, and put everything away. It was then almost five in the afternoon and growing dark. I sent Dave Cheat an email informing him that I would be at his meeting at SLAM the next morning. I went into my bedroom and looked at the wall where Kaori's painting had been hanging. Empty space. I looked at the bed. Empty space. I closed the blinds and went to my desk. Blank paper. I stared at my phone. I didn't know Kaori's phone number. The only time she had called me was when she had called from inside the Missoula jail. I went back out, and I drove to her apartment, and I rang the doorbell. She opened the door and looked at me. Her face had no expression. She asked, What do you want? I answered her. I said, I I'm going to Seattle tomorrow morning for business. Come with me? We were in New York yesterday. Come with me to Seattle tomorrow? Why? She asked. I fight you. I yell. I take back everything. Why? I answered her. You are the only true thing I know right now. In Seattle, maybe I will see you draw. I, I want to watch you draw. Seattle, she said. Good stores in Seattle. And then she said abruptly, yes, I come. <laughs> Great, I said. I'll buy your ticket and I'll be here and pick you up early at uh, six. That's early. Okay. She said, I turned to leave, but she took hold of my sleeve and said, you come here and pulled at me. I'm tired. I said, I, I didn't sleep well last night. You sleep now. She said, you sleep with me now. Talk to me. I said, laying down on her narrow bed, talk to me in your language. Silly man, you not know my language. I closed my eyes and I repeated, talk to me. And she did. She spoke quietly with words I could not understand, the sounds rising and falling with a rhythm and a pattern that felt right. I fell asleep again in her bed, again with her. Then I dreamt of confusion. I was going backwards trying to resolve the past with a chronology that always moved forward. In my dream, I was listening to Helen asking me to find a way to make more money. And in my dream, I was saying that we did not need more. Then 
Helen was gone, and I was in an empty room saying over and over again that I had found money. My repeated dream words became quieter until I was alone again in the darkness of a sleep which had no time at all. I woke up in the middle of the night. Dim light was coming from the alley street light outside the window. It was the first time that I had woken up with Kaori still sleeping next to me. The sounds of her breathing was slow. Her face, lit in the dimness, was calm, and she was beautiful. I was tormented with why I wanted to be with this woman, this girl, who was calm one moment and then raging the next. But I gave in, my skin against hers, and she murmured and pulled me closer, and nothing else mattered. Kaori and I had gone to sleep in the early evening, and we both woke up at about five in the morning. I went out to my car and used the phone to get her a ticket. When I came back into her apartment, she was dressed. She had her large portfolio case and the same travel bag that she had packed just a few days before. Then we drove to my house. She waited while I went inside and got some clothes, which I put into the small duffel. When I came back to the car, she asked where my big luggage was. I told her that I was ready for simpler things. She said, I make up for you. You dress like a student. I dress this way. She was wearing black pants, a loose white blouse that was mostly lace, and a long black wool coat. I dress like business for you, she said. On the flight, Kaori told me that when she had been in Seattle before, she stayed in a downtown youth hostel called the Green Tortoise. She said she liked it because people from all over the world stayed there. She also told me that there were many fun stores close. She told me this like a young child describing the anticipation of eating cotton candy at a fair. We were flying over the Cascades, and she asked if Tsai would be in Seattle. I explained that the people I would be meeting with in Seattle did not know Tsai, and that after the morning meeting, I would have the rest of the day free. She told me that she would shop while you work, she said. You give me money. We pretend love. Gentle words, someone to wake up with, Maybe relationships would work if they were based on present tense actions that never looked for a future past the next day. I used to study the night, the stars, while camping next to my car. I learned names from an old star chart that I carried along with my highway maps. Mintanka in Orion's belt, the bright left eye of the bull, Sirius, Vega, Trying for a direction beyond anywhere possible, I looked at distant points of bright light and wished that I could find out where I was going by navigating by light that had traveled forever. On the flight to Seattle, I looked at Kaori and wondered what could happen if I tried to go on with her. She had said to me, We pretend love but we were again traveling with each other, the second trip in one week, and she was excited, 
happy about being in a city that she knew and about something so easy as shopping. I looked at her and tried to forget that she was out on bail with four felony charges and that she had no legal permission to be traveling anywhere. And I tried to forget that the day before I had buried 11 pounds of $100 bills in the Rattlesnake Mountains. I did it, I said quietly, looking out the window, so quietly that Kaori did not hear me. I said this like Kaori will soon say. I did. I did it. And I did take the money. And I did bury it. So I must say, true and clear as starlight, I did it. I stole. And I caused death by doing so. But this writing, this tense changing back and forth, past and future, it hurts and cramps my hand which holds this pencil. Difficult stories have more tense changes and more points of view than the bright stars in a studied night sky. But those truest points have no shame and no regrets. Now, in my real tense, in this moment, as I'm writing, I wonder if these words will become the coordinates and the bearings to a history of what went wrong. I would like to forget about my part in what has already happened and what, in these words, will soon be told. Death, shame, and regret. Like the entertainment of a wreck on a sharp curve, the wheel which finally wobbled off its axle, the flashing lights say, slow down and look at what went wrong. If you have come this far with me, touch what is near to you now as I touch this pencil and this paper. You've just listened to part six of The Lie, Bearings, here on Montana Voice Podcast. If you've been enjoying listening to this story unfold and want to hear more of it, the upcoming chapters about murder and other characters. It would help a lot if you shared links to this podcast on your social media pages. And if you're listening with iTunes or Apple Podcasts, uh, give it a, a good rating or even a comment. That's just great. If you want to communicate directly with me, go to montanavoice.com and there are links there to to my email address and social accounts. And once again, that's me playing music for this. Mm -hmm.